0: Good morning, Lighthouse. We're glad to see all of you here this morning. We're glad you're in the house of the Lord. God inhabits the praises of his people, so we're all so glad you're here this morning. If you feel like standing with us as we praise and worship, please do so. We're going to ask God this morning to open the eyes of our hearts. Are we all glad you're here this morning? Say amen. Yeah. Amen. We're glad. So let's sing Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. Let's beseech Him this morning. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. to see you this morning, Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Jesus, we lay ourselves before you. There's no turning back. We stand before you this day opening our hearts and our minds, claiming whatever else no turning back. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Please be seated.
1: All right. Whew. Well, good morning. good morning. I hope you guys are doing well. And I just, I am so grateful that we get to gather together. There we go. Um, I'm so grateful that we get to gather here together today. And I, I, I will tell you, We're now, what, two weeks into our Revelation study. We're about to start the third week, and it feels like there's a lot of things that are seeking to distract from that. I know that there are things in our own lives before we came in here today, even as we were coming in, that could be a distraction, and we don't want that to be the case. We simply want to focus on Jesus this morning, and that's what we're going to do. Um, So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Because we are now getting into some really wonderful, exciting stuff that speaks directly to where we're at, but it's through seven other church communities that are experiencing pressure. If you, if you want, let's go ahead and look on the screen for just a moment. Here's a map of uh, where we are talking about. Sometimes it's helpful to get this in our head. John is riding from the prison island of Patmos, which is on the bottom right there, out in the sea. It's about 10 miles from shore. And the closest city to him, you see those seven cities that are kind of arrayed around there? Those are the seven cities that he is riding to, the closest of which is Ephesus. And that's what we are going to be looking at today. Now, why is John on that island? He's there because there was a pressure from the... the community at large, but more specifically from the political powers that be, we can take the map off the screen now, from the political powers that be to bend a knee to Caesar and call him Lord. And because John was unwilling to do that, he was shipped out to this prison island to kind of just be out of sight, out of mind, so that he would not encourage other Christ followers to bend a knee. And as we've seen over the last two weeks, he feels compelled to write a letter to these seven churches because as he's on that prison island, on a Sunday morning like today, as he's caught up in worship, the Holy Spirit kind of guiding him along in that, he hears a voice and he turns around and and when he looks, he sees seven golden lampstands which he will find out later represent the seven churches that he's being called to write to. And standing in the midst of those seven lampstands is one That looks like the son of man. We know this is Jesus. And Jesus is resplendent in his high priest robes. And he is radiant in his holiness and his glory. So much so that when John sees him, he can't help but fall to his knees in reverential respect because of who is in front of him. And what I love about this picture is Jesus, rather than kind of standing there with his arms crossed like, that's right, you better cower. Jesus moves towards him, reaches out a hand, places it on his shoulder, and says, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, John. Don't be afraid of your circumstances. Don't be afraid of me. Why? Jesus says, Because I was dead, but I am alive again. I have faced down the worst of what this world can throw at you. And I'm here. I now hold the keys to death and Hades. In other words, I have authority over death. So you don't need to be afraid of the so-called power brokers that are holding your life in their fists, or or claim to at least. Don't be afraid, John. And instead of cowering in fear, get up, because I have a job for you. I want you to write a letter to these seven churches. I want you to communicate to them the words I have for them. He was asking John to be his prophet. A prophet is somebody who speaks the words from God, and this is what he's going to do in these seven messages that he sends to these seven churches. Each of them speaking into the context that they find themselves in, and each of these messages speaking directly to us as well, because they're utterly relevant, as we're going to find. So, if you are in in Revelation chapter 2, let's go ahead and begin reading in verse 1. To the angel... Of the church in Ephesus, right. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them False. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and you've not grown weary. And yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent or turn back and do the things you did at first. Because if you don't repent, if you don't turn back, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, now since this is the first message that we're getting i want to at first deal with who it is addressed to you notice there at the very beginning he says to the angel of the church in ephesus and at the end of last chapter he says he who holds the seven stars and and walks amongst the seven golden lampstands and he, and jesus tells him the seven stars represent the seven angels of these seven churches and so we want to first begin by asking well who is he addressing this to? And, and one of you, uh, Tony, this week sent me an email saying, hey, I'd really love to understand who this is. Is it an actual angel or is it more like the pastor of the church? Because the word angelo, which we translate as angel here, simply means messenger. And so some scholars would say, hey, he's not actually talking about real angels. He's talking about the human messengers who would receive this letter and read it to the churches. That's who it's addressed to. And then we can kind of get rid of all that spiritual stuff that we don't understand by simply explaining it that way. And that might be the case. However, for the rest of Revelation, as you continue to read through it, every single time that word angelo comes up, It means a divine messenger or what we would call an angel. So simply being consistent in our reading would indicate that the the preponderance of evidence leans more towards he's addressing these to actual divine angels who have been called to watch over the community of Christ followers in that city. And although we don't often think in those terms because we can't see angels with our eyes, we can't weigh them and measure them with our instruments, this actually is in accordance with a whole lot of Scripture that suggests to us that angels are real and angels are active in our world. You don't need to turn here, but I'm just going to briefly tell you one example of this. In 2 Kings chapter 6, There is a prophet, Elisha, who has been really getting on the nerves of a foreign king, so much so that that king goes out of his way to find out where Elisha is because he wants to end him. And when he finds out what city Elisha is camped out in, he goes and he brings his army and they surround the city. There is zero chance that Elisha is going to get away. The next morning when Elisha and his servant wake up, They go up to the city walls, and they look out, and they see this enemy army completely surrounding them, and Elisha's servant is freaked out. He's like, we're toast. There's no way we get out of this. And Elisha looks at him and says, don't worry. Don't be afraid, because those who are with us are more numerous than those who are with them. And then Elisha begins to pray, God, open his eyes so that he can see in the spiritual realm and when his servant looks back out he sees an angelic army standing protecting them from this other army this this human army and in that moment Elisha's servant's fear turns into faith we see it again and again that there there are things in the spiritual realm that we simply can't see and you remember that revelation means a peeling back of what we can see with our eyes to reveal or to uncover what really truly is. And I would suggest to you that by addressing these letters to the angels in these seven churches, Jesus is revealing to us a part of the spiritual world that we don't often see or think about, and that is the fact that we are not alone. That there are actually angels who have been assigned to watch over the church community in Costa Mesa. And there might be 60 different churches in Costa Mesa, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to have an angel for each one as if we are individualistic. Remember, Jesus is the head of all of us. There's only one church in Costa Mesa. But we have an angelic host that watch over us. And this, by the way, gives me great comfort. Because what I realize, and is what we're going to talk about next week, Is that behind a lot of the pressures that the the things that might cause us fear out in the world that we come into contact with the pressures to conform behind those things that seem to be from human standpoint, there is a spiritual enemy that stands opposed to us. The one that's really kind of trying to push that. And that is our true enemy. And how do we as human beings stand against a spiritual enemy that we can't see with weapons? that are more conventional, how do we fight against it? It brings me great confidence and great comfort to know that there are spiritual eyes who have been assigned by my Father to watch over us. And this affects the way I pray, personally. Just this week, I have asked the Father to put a hedge of protection around my home. I have asked Him to to station angels to protect my kids as they sleep. They ask me to do that every single night. Just this week, as conversations are stirring and I'm realizing that for whatever reason, the enemy seems to be really kind of coming at us from a lot of different angles. Just this week, I have been praying that the Father would station angels around our church. And I don't mean our church property. I mean around you. Because remember, this is just a box. We are the church. And so, whether you're here in person or you're watching from home, I have been praying that God would set station angels to watch over you and protect you with eyes to see in the spiritual realm in ways that we can't always. And I've been praying that over our city. It gives me great comfort to know. That said, whether or not Jesus is addressing these two actual, literal, angelic messengers or to the human messenger who would be tasked with reading this, a.k.a. the pastor, the message that he has for the believers in the church of Ephesus is for them. And so now, let's consider for a moment, again, because context is key. If we want to understand what we're reading, we need to kind of understand the context into which it was written. Let's talk for just two minutes about what Ephesus was like, what it might have been like for believers living there. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in all of the Roman Empire. It was the largest and the most influential city of these seven cities that we're going to be reading about. They were the leaders in banking in that region. They also boasted the biggest and most um, kind of productive seaport. And so you had people coming in and out. It was a melting pot. When I think of Ephesus, I think of New York as a good Analog to what this was. It was a banking center, it was a business center, it was a shipping port where people were coming in and going out. But it was more than that, because it was also a religious epicenter for some pagan beliefs. There were two temples that dominated the skyline in Ephesus. The first one, throw the picture up here, was the temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis, or as the Romans would call her, Diana. They believed that she was a fertility goddess. There were a whole bunch of temple prostitutes that worked in there and in that temple. And it held sway, not only over Ephesus, but over that whole region. The cult of Artemis was great. So much so that we read about in Acts chapter 19 when Paul and the disciples began to share the gospel message in Ephesus, and people began to come to the Lord, it actually started to affect business for those who made the silver shrines to Artemis. That was one of their major exports, was silver shrines. And when they began to realize that their sales were going down because of the stinking gospel about a, a crucified carpenter was making inroads, they rioted. So you've got that spiritual pressure going on but you also have a second temple that dominated. And this is, this is the ruins of it, but this is the temple dedicated to Caesar Domitian, the man who sat on the throne of Rome at the time we believe that this letter, Revelation, was written. One of the things that Rome did is they, gave, they kind of threw cities that, that submitted to them and, and, and performed well. They liked to give them the opportunity to build temples to the caesars but typically what they would do is they would wait until that caesar was dead and then they would build a temple in his honor almost like after they died then they're deified caesar domitian was one of the few caesars who said no i don't want to wait till i'm dead to be worshiped i want to be worshiped now and so in 90 a.d he graciously gave ephesus the right to build a temple in his name and when you came into ephesus the first thing that was expected of you would be to go to this temple, take a pinch of incense, throw it on the brazier, and say, Caesar is Lord, because that was your way of paying homage, your little act of worship that said, I swear my allegiance to Caesar. Of course, for John and the Christians... There's only one Lord, and it's, his name is not Caesar Domitian. His name is Jesus Christ. So they refused. And this is the reason why John is cooling his heels on the island of Patmos. But he's not the only one who is enduring persecution for his faith. Lots of believers refused to do this, and they lost their jobs because of it. They, if they had businesses, people began to boycott them and say, I'm not going to go shopping there. I'm going to go shopping at somebody who respects our leadership. They began to um, have friction in their families. Some of them were disowned because of their refusal to bend a knee to Caesar Domitian. And so in everything, persecution or pressure, I should say, to conform and to go along, to get along, was, was replete. And it's safe to say that the soil that the church was growing in in Ephesus was pretty rocky soil. Would you agree? It'd be a pretty difficult place for them to grow. And yet, as we're going to hear, they were not just growing in it. They seemed to be flourishing. Listen to the things that Jesus says to them. The very first things he says in in verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people. That you've tested those who claim to be apostles but aren't and have found them false. In other words, you're really zealous About right theology. About not just taking what everybody says is the gospel truth. They say, well, this this should be added in. We'll talk a little bit about what some of that might have been a little bit later. But they were zealous about their theology. But not only that, they were doing tons of great things. They They were not only... Sharing the gospel so much so that the, the, the numbers of people who called themselves Christ followers in that region was growing exponentially, but they were doing so many good works. If they recognized that there was a social issue in the city, they took it upon themselves to address that issue. And so they were doing a lot of good things in the name of Jesus Christ, and any outside observer would look at the church in Ephesus and say, dang, you guys are killing it. I want to be more like you. Can we do do a big church conference and we can learn from you guys? Because you obviously are doing it right. Verse 3. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Even when you experience pushback, even when there is pressure to conform, you don't give in to it. Mass respect. But is there anything more that could be asked of a church? than to be zealous about their theology and to do lots and lots of good work. Well, notice what Jesus says in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. You've lost your first love in other words you used to do these things because of our relationship because you were so in love with me but you no longer are doing that out of being motivated by love you're now doing it being motivated by obligation expectation the things that you did as a response to me are now simply responsibilities And in that process, you have replaced your relationship with a religion. And because of this, you're not reflecting me well in the city. You're doing good things for wrong reasons. And if this doesn't change, if you don't come back to me, there's going to be a a, a repercussion. If you don't repent, and this is the second half of verse 5, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, what he's not saying is that if you don't repent, you'll lose your faith. Or you'll lose your, you'll lose your salvation. I'm going to disown you. And all that kind of stuff. Here's what he's saying. My, my, my sons and my daughters. Are, Jesus, my sisters and my brothers in Ephesus. Listen. You chose to follow me because... You experienced my love for you. And I experienced your love for me. And everything you did was a response out of that. I want a bride, but you're not acting like a bride. You're acting like a servant. And quite honestly, I'm not asking you to take that posture. And if you continue to demand that you act like a servant as opposed to my bride then I'm going to remove your influence from the city because it is not reflective of my heart. Does this make sense? Now, there's one thing going for them. There's one thing in the midst of all of this, though, that he wants to kind of affirm them for. Verse 6. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also Now, we're not going to go a deep dive into who the Nicolaitans are today. We'll talk a little bit more about it in a couple of weeks. Here's Here's the briefest brushstroke. Nicolaitans were a group of people who had bought into the belief that we can import some of the sexual practices of the cult of Artemis and other pagan religions into Christianity as a way of just kind of making it a really good hodgepodge way of following God. God is honored with that. And this is what they were standing against. They say, no, this is wrong. We're not going to allow that outside pressure to work its way into the church. But I want you to notice what Jesus affirms them for. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Not, you hate the Nicolaitans. And that is a massive, massive difference because I think far too often in our culture and just as human beings, when you disagree with somebody's perspective on a thorny topic, it is a very short step to begin to hate that person, not just their perspective. Does this make sense? And we see this everywhere on social media. People are treated as the sum total of their perspective. And so when you push against their perspective, you almost push against them. It's easy to to assassinate their character or their value as a human being as opposed to addressing the area of disagreement. Far too often we have given in to hating the sinner, not just the sin. God bless you, Ethan. Thank God our Father doesn't treat us that way because I can promise you, all of us, have at times, and even maybe perhaps now, have wonky perspectives of how we view him and approach him and and what we think that he is permissive of and the way that we're living. If he simply said, if you mess up, you're dead to me. Well, then guess what? We might as well go home and get ready to watch football later because we got nothing going for us. Thank God he does not treat us like we have a tendency to treat other people. But if that's the way he treats us, with grace as opposed to guilt and condemnation, then may it be so with us as well. May we never hate the people, even if we do not support the practices. We'll talk more about this because it's something that is just so ingrained in our society. What we're going to do today, as we've kind of worked through this, I love the way that in looking at other church communities and how they're dealing with pressure, it gives us the ability to then use that as a lens and go, okay, in what ways do we run the same risk? And this morning, perhaps the biggest uh, lens that we can bring from this message and and bring to bear on ourselves is this question of losing our first love. How can we serve God but not be in love with God? Where does first love come from? And even a bigger question is, how do we lose it? Because we want to avoid falling into the same trap. A lot of times we can get some help in understanding lofty theological perspectives on our relationship with God by first looking at our relationships with one another. So briefly, let me just kind of outline how you can lose first love in a dating or a marriage relationship. 20 years ago, when I first fell in love with Kathy, who is now my wife of 17 years, when I first fell in love with this woman, it didn't matter what I had going on in my world, she had my attention. It didn't matter if I was in the last paragraph of the last page of a really good book. If she had a thought on her mind, I was more interested in hearing what she had to say there. It didn't matter that I hate driving in traffic with a passion so much so that I live 100 yards from the church because I'd rather avoid driving on freeways. It didn't matter. She lived in South County and she wants to hang out at 5.30 on a, uh, a weekday evening. I will embrace driving an hour to get down to her just to spend half an hour with her because I valued time with her more than anything. First love is focused on relationship with the, the object of our first love, and it says, you're more valuable to me than anything else. So even other good stuff, I'm willing to put it to the background in order to spend time with you. Now, 20 years into our relationship and 17 years into marriage, I cannot say that I've always taken that same approach in our marriage. There are times when I'm reading a book, and I'm in a really good part, and she has something that she wants to talk about, I'm like, ah, seriously? And even if I do stop, I do so begrudgingly, right? I'm like, tell me, how long is this going to take so I can get back to my book, right? <laughs> Hypothetically, of course, people. <laughs> right. when, when she calls me and she says, hey, honey, can you do? I no longer go, yay! It's more like a... Really? You want me to pick up the kids? Can't you do it? Right? Like, and, and even more insidiously, it's not, I'm not always as quick to drop whatever to be, spend time with her because it's almost like it's really easy to take time with her for granted. And so when I have other things that are demanding my attention, it is so much easier to stay focused on them and forget that she's right there. The object of my love, this woman who has so captured my heart that I've given her, I've said, let's, let's journey together through life. And I can almost overlook her at times. I know that this is probably not, has not happened for any of you. But for me, this has been my experience from time to time. You guys, you guys know there's this really uh, wonderful theologian named Jeff Foxworthy who, who uses... <laughs> He had this kind of way of asking questions that kind of put it right in front of your face. So I, I have a couple of Jeff Foxworthy thoughts here. If you get frustrated when your sweetie interrupts you to share something, you might have lost your first love. If date nights become an obligation rather than an opportunity, you might have lost your first love. And if serving your spouse becomes a chore rather than a, pre- a pleasure... You might have lost your first love. And the same thing happens in a relationship with people, but it can also happen in our relationship with God. I remember when, God, when Jesus captured my heart. I was a sophomore in college, and I'd grown up in the church. I'd been part of youth groups all throughout. I'd gone to camps. I'd prayed the prayer. I'd been baptized. But sophomore year of college, I had an encounter with the living God at a men's retreat over on Catalina Island. I was overwhelmed by his love. And when I came back to school, when I I came back to the fraternity house where I lived on Sunday evening, I was a different person. I didn't have to spend time in God's word. I wanted to. I didn't have to remind myself to pray. It just happened naturally. I wanted to commune with him, not just at meals, but throughout the day. Listening, sharing, bringing questions that were there and they're just kind of waiting and journaling, all of that kind of stuff happened so naturally. And in my conversations, man, I bet my fraternity brothers that year got sick and tired of hearing about Jesus, because it seemed like so many of my conversations I had with them naturally found their way going back to talking about Jesus. I wasn't ashamed. I, I, I wasn't ashamed that everybody knew I was in love with Jesus, and I wanted them to know. But, almost, you know, a little bit more, wow, like 25 years later, that's, that's shocking to say. 25 years later, I can't say that I operate the same way even as a pastor. There are times where I need to remind myself, oh, yeah, I need, I need to spend time in God's word. It's not, you know, it, 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 when you wake up in the morning, and you, especially if you read, you know, the Bible app on your phone, it's such, you know, like, there's that decision. Do I open up social media? Do I open up my, uh, my news app? Do I open up the Bible? Like, there's a choice every single morning, which is why I prefer to go analog, go out with the actual scriptures there. But, there are times where I go, oh, I need to, and I feel almost obligated. Times where I forget to pray. It's almost like you need to force yourself to do it. Times where even as I'm walking out after having tucked Ethan and he goes, well, dad, can you pray for me? It's like, oh my gosh, I forgot to pray for my son, right? Like, yes, I want to. It can be so easy for us to Yes, we're doing lots of good things. Yes, we are serving him this way and that, but we're not doing it any longer because we are in love with him. We're not doing it any longer because he has captured our attention and we just want to spend time with him. We're doing it out of a sense of obligation, responsibility, and expectation, a sense of duty. And when that happens, our relationship morphs into a cold, lifeless religion. And at that point, we have lost our first love. And this isn't something that only happens once and at that point it's gone. Otherwise, why would Jesus implore this church community who's serving out of a sense of obligation and duty to come back, to repent? Because it's simply an an invitation to be aware of how we are approaching God and what is beneath all of our good works. What is motivating us? You want to know how, here's here's a fun question, you want to know how to, um, the quickest way to get rid of your first love, to kill your first love, make a list of all the things you have to do for God. Make a list of all of the responsibilities that you have and all of the expectations that he has of you. And what you will find is that your joy to worship him quickly dissipates. You will find that your love for him will give way to a sense of duty and obligation, and your relationship will quickly turn into a religion. It's interesting. We use words sometimes, or at least, you know, I do. Words like, responsibility and expectation, like I have responsibilities as a a father, and I have responsibilities as a pastor, and I have responsibilities as a Christ follower. What does God expect of me? But interestingly, words like responsibility and expectation are not relational words. They're transactional words. They're the kind of words you use between a boss and an employee in a work setting. And I want to point out that neither of those words is found anywhere in Scripture. God, our Father, Jesus, our Lord, the Holy Spirit, our Comforter and His ever-present being with us, does not heap responsibilities upon us. Now, there's a lot of very well-meaning pastors who think that that was an oversight, so we go out of our way to try to correct Him in that, but God is not interested in heaping you down with a pile of responsibilities. Rather, he wants you to be able to respond. What's the difference? Responsibilities say, do these things and we can have relationship. The ability to respond says, we have relationship, you are loved, so out of that, you get to love others. You have experienced deep grace that you didn't deserve. That's why it's grace and not payment for, you know, duties rendered. So now you get to be a conduit of grace to others. We love because he first loved us. All of the ways that we live should flow out of our relationship as opposed to being the the stepping stones that we build to have relationships. Is this making sense? Similarly, expectations are caustic to relationship. When you go into a relationship and you carry expectations of what you think you need to get from that person, and you think that they have expectations of you, more often than not, both parties are left frustrated. And there's not a whole lot of close relationship that takes place. But what's the alternative to expectations? A sense of expectancy. Just this week, I I hung with a pastor from the city. I love to get together and just hang out with my fellow co-laborers in the city. And the thing is, we didn't have an agenda. We didn't go in with, we need to get these things done. Rather, we just said, hey, want to hang out? Yeah, let's hang out. Let's, Let's get together at noon. I quite honestly didn't know if I was going to eat lunch or we were going to go for a hike. I didn't have any expectations. Expectations curl their fingers around an an end goal and say, this is why. This is what I deserve. This is what I need out of this. And if I don't get this, I'm going to be upset. It's rigid. Expectancy says, I don't know what's going to happen, but so long as we're together, it's going to be good and I can't wait. That's how I used to feel. And that's how I still feel quite often in my marriage. I don't know what we're going to do, but I'm just excited to get to be with you. The ability to respond and expectancy flow out of relationship, whereas responsibilities and expectations either flow out of or help produce religion. And let me tell you, I don't want you to go through life with a heavy religion hanging over your head. Because when we do that, when we start operating, when we start approaching God out of responsibilities and expectations, well, then everything we do, even if it's really good, the fruit begins to taste a little funny. Because what we are motivated by to do it is out of obligation and duty, like a servant, as opposed to out of expectancy and the ability to respond like the bride of Christ that we give are invited to be when we serve god out of obligation we do so resentingly we do so resistantly kind of like when i ask my kids to to go and do a service project at this point in their life they're like "Eh, i don't really want to it's like but we're still going to do it now and I, i was exactly the same way when i was younger now i look forward to opportunities to serve. in fact that gives me the greatest amount of joy when we are focused on responsibility and expectation, when it becomes a religion, then our, our attention to theological detail, to having orthodox or right thinking, when it comes to our beliefs, turns into dead legalism and nitpicking. We don't want that. When we give in to dead, cold religion, when we approach God with this way, our Our hatred for the practices of the Nicolaitans or anybody else turns into a hatred of the Nicolaitans themselves. When we give in to cold, dead religion, our relationship becomes a religion. And there are some of us who need to lose our religion today. So that we can turn back to the one who captured our heart and say, regardless of where you're going, I want to be with you. Regardless of what you ask of me, I'm willing to do it because you're worth it. Regardless of what you ask me to lay down, regardless of how much it interrupts my life, I do so with joy just to get to be with you. So Jesus, lead on, I will follow. That's the cry that I pray that we as a church community will come to, that we will lay down our religious sense of duty, obligation with all of the responsibilities and expectations that we have kind of plastered onto our approach to Jesus and come as we are, imperfect as we are, to a Lord who loves us so perfectly that he gave his life so that we could be restored back into relationship. And so that our purpose in life, our primary purpose of reflecting his heart into this world would be restored back to us. So I'm going to pray as the worship team comes forward. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit does something in here today. And that the Holy Spirit does something for you who are at home. That he breathes new life into your relationship with God. That he opens your eyes to the overwhelming wonder of a Lord who loves you just as you are. And who says, not only I want to be with you, but I want you to join me in reflecting the redemptive message of grace to a world that is so dead set on tearing itself apart by pointing fingers and condemning. May we be known by the way we reflect the love of our holy, glorious, gracious, and intimately close Lord. Father God, I am grateful that you love us in spite of us. Mm -hmm. Jesus, I am so grateful for the ways you modeled a sacrificial, others-centered love. Holy Spirit, I'm grateful for the ways that you expose in us the religious rocks that we pick up along the way the ways that we have turned following our Lord into a job rather than a relationship. I pray, Holy Spirit, that even now you would begin to continue to expose the ways that we've wandered away from first love and we've picked up a religion along the way. May we rest in your love for us so that we can then become a conduit of that love to others that we encounter, whether it's in the first couple of steps out of this place today or throughout the week or in the coming months and years. May we be a people who are so set in your love for us that we become conduits of it. Everything that we do flows out of our first love for you, not out of a sense of duty. Pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Love you guys, and let's worship together.
0: stepped away and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your. Wait.
1: Because what it does is it reminds us to lift our eyes up from our circumstances, up from the things that are currently causing us fear, to fix our eyes on the one who stands above our fear, but is also so intimately near to us. And he says, I know what you're going through. I'm right here with you. And if you will simply persevere, then I will give you the right to do life with me. But not only that, and here's the best part for right now. Eternal life, absolutely, and I'm in. But for right now, he will allow us to radiate the light of the hope and the love and the grace that we found in him into our spheres of influence. And that's what you get to do. Not just rest in his love, but radiate that for others who desperately need it. So wait, may we be worthy and and thank God the lord for the holy spirit who makes us worthy because otherwise we would not be but thank the lord that he allows us to reflect his light in the darkness and guys as much as there's a lot going on there's some really fun things going on as well i want to let you know of just a couple that pastor jeff reminded me of this week alone we have two engagements in our church community including our youth pastor josh and his fiance which is very exciting And Pastor Jeff also just informed me that our sister Rachel, who has been dealing with cancer, has just found out she's cancer-free. And that is something we have been praying ardently for. Really good stuff. I am grateful to get to be on this journey with you. If you have prayer requests, if you have questions that got stirred up. You can absolutely write them on connection cards and drop them along with your offering if you have that in the back boxes. If you're at home, you can email them to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. I can't tell you how excited we get when we get questions of people wanting to grapple with the scriptures. So please don't think that you're, you know, an irritation. In fact, you're a blessing when you ask your honest questions. Um on Wednesday, if you want to join us in here, Pastor Bill and I are going to be kind of, we're going to continue this study through the, the letter of revelation. That's on Wednesday with your life groups, or you can, you can just dive in with your life group. I love you. I am so grateful to get to be on this journey with you. I recognize the way that the enemy is trying to stir things up and distract us, which tells me that we are right where we need to be. And I'm so grateful that our Father God looks out for us and that there are other spiritual eyes who are keeping their eyes on us. So now go and be the church. Go and reflect the heart of love and grace that you've experienced. Have a wonderful week. Open the
0: eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. See you.